You lost a close friend in tragic circumstances, yet circumstances that affect far too many women and girls in your country. The scourge of female genital mutilation is as deep-rooted as it is destructive. But you have dedicated your life to fighting this scourge and to literally saving girls' lives. You are listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. What would I tell the little girl who was 10 years old such a long time ago? Well, I think I would tell her, believe your gut, persevere, and move forward. Et il faut avancer. This week, trying to right deep ancient wrongs, educating women to protect themselves, and a lifelong practice of giving back. Join us on a journey from Burkina Faso to Washington, D.C., and the making of an international woman of courage. It's 22.33. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And that's what we call cultural exchange. Je suis Widraugo Claire. My name is Claire Widraugo, and my married name is Gebre. I come from Burkina Faso, from the central northern region of the country. I have uh, human resource uh, training, but since very early, I became engaged in the fight against genital, female genital mutilations. In Burkina Faso, uh, female genital mutilations are a traditional and customary practice, and it is present in the entire country. In my community, all girls are excised, and families and the entire communities practice these uh, female genital mutilations. In Burkina Faso, 75% of uh, women and girls aged 15 to 49 are excised. As show the 2019 studies, though, the rate has thankfully gone down to 67%. And so we have actually conducted studies to try and show whether or not there is a positive side to these genital mutilations. And obviously, we came out with an absolute no. And therefore, we have done advocacy. We have done a lot of activities in order to fight these practices.
L'histoire remonte de il y a très longtemps. The story goes a long way back to when I was seven years old, because uh, girls in my country uh, are grouped, and when they are ages seven to ten, they it's their turn to be excised. And so my friends were meant to go for the excision ceremony, and I was only lucky because my father was not there. And therefore, my mother was afraid for my life, and therefore, it wasn't my turn. And uh, even though I was not excised then, I witnessed some of my friends and many girls bleed to death. Uh, girls dying of this, girls suffering, girls in, in terrible pain. And two years later, uh, my mother could not take the social pressure and the weight of the local community because I was not excised and therefore I was different and the community did not accept it. And so she sent me to my grandmother's. I, my grandmother loved me very much. And so I could not understand why she would send me to be excised because to me it was a contradiction. How could she possibly love me so much and let this happen to me? And so I wanted to understand. And then I finally came to realize that it, even though it was so hard for me to understand how I could possibly be loved so much and be imposed such pain and suffering because it was ambiguous. But I understood that my family, my mother and then my grandmother, could not bear the pain that they thought I was going to go through because I was going to be different. And so I understood that it's ignorance that mothers are... Basic, that, that makes mothers send their daughters to be excised. They have no idea of the consequences. They have no ideas of the danger. The social pressure is unsustainable for them. And that's the only reason why they bring their daughters to bear such a situation. And more than anything else, they have no clue about long and short-term circumstances and consequences. So I did a lot of research because I wanted to understand. And so I spoke to a lot of people and I spoke to a lot of my family members. I spoke to my aunts. I spoke to my grandmothers and so many other uh, frontline witnesses of these excision ceremonies. And I wanted to ask them why did they see this and witness this and by saying, but why, why is it that you don't see that this girl bled to death? How can you cannot, how can you not realize that this girl died because she bled to death? And their response was always something like she died not because of excision, but because it was her destiny. Or, um, I would go and say, but these girls, this girl, for example, she became sick because of excision. She had very important health problems. And they would answer, no, actually the witches of the village took her 
But she, they, I came gradually to understand that the people and these women did not make a link, a cause to affect relationship between the act of excision and the disease or the death. And so the main motivation is that I had a friend who belonged to a family of women who perform these excisions. And in my country, these women transmit their know-how and traditionally it's a mother-to-daughter tradition. And so... This friend of mine uh, was a first-hand victim of excision because when she went back to her village with her daughter, they forcefully excised her daughter against her will, her mother and aunts. And this girl, after the excision, uh, had suffered a massive hemorrhage and almost died of the excision, but unfortunately she had to bear uh, very difficult uh, consequences because uh, the skin formed a very large keloid between her legs. And then uh, this friend of mine showed me her daughter who could not even walk because that keloid was so large that it prevented her from having any type of mobility, let alone all the pain that she felt. And the mother was desperate. She didn't know how to help her daughter. And unfortunately, her daughter got sicker and died. And I was very shocked. And I started asking myself, how would she have lived if she hadn't died? How would she have continued to live in her condition? And so this was the trigger that made me want to be more engaged. And I started to do research. And I started to talk about it with the women who excise themselves with the people who are confronted with this problem, with the people who are living around people who have been mutilated. It came to me somewhat naturally simply because I was born in such communities. It was my world and that's what I knew. And I saw so many girls die of this. And I saw so many times the consequences, the physical 
consequences of that that were dramatic. And all of these situations gave me strength because I realized it was really necessary to make people understand how useless such practices were. And I even saw it in my mother's eyes because it, I saw in my mother's eyes that it was not what she wanted to do, but it was the pressure of society that made her feel cornered feel constrained that she had to do this for her daughters but she didn't want to feel make them feel pain and she didn't want to do this some wives are rejected by their husbands because of the mutilations making them be closed as we call them because of the scarring tissue and so they cannot be mothers and they cannot have any types of sexual relations. And so some other women have drastic fistulas and are treated as pariahs. They are rejected by their families. They're rejected by their husbands and their husbands' families and are even abandoned by everyone. Yes, um, one day I attended a religious ceremony and where all of the women of the village gathered. And so I took this opportunity to talk with them. And I talked a lot about excision, about what it is, about its consequences, about everything. And the women opened a lot to me. And after that, uh, one woman called me to go into her home. And this woman has a 22-year-old daughter who had been married for a week. And she was sent home by her husband because he said she was, quote-unquote, closed. And so the village laughs. Everybody in the village laughs at her and makes fun of her. And the mother also started to think that it had to be tied to these mutilations, these consequences. And also, the mother said that she had realized that after her daughter had been excised, she had difficulty urinating. And she also started to link this and tie this to this excision. Issue. So I told the following to the mother. I said, we should take your daughter to the hospital and have her examined because that way we can understand whether or not these mutilations are the reason why your daughter has all of these problems. And so I took the daughter to the hospital, to the matern maternity, and there of Konguse, my city. And there she saw a gynecologist, and the gynecologist examined her and saw, of course, that she had been excised and said that indeed she was closed, but that she could undergo surgery and that would 
solve the problem and she would be cured, but that this rural hospital did not have the facilities nor the means to perform the surgery, and that she had to be taken to Ouagadougou, the capital of Burkina Faso. And so we had to figure out a way to gather means and money to transport her to Ouagadougou because this was not an, something simple, and so that we could program the surgery there in the hospital. And I got for this the help of the National Committee for the Fight Against Excision, which is a national committee created by the government to fight against the excision. And thanks to this, after we were able to gather the money necessary to send her to Ouagadougou, we were able to have her undergo the surgery. Young woman was cured. The surgery was successful, and so she was able to go home. After that, she was able to get married again. And she had one boy and one girl and started a new life. And so this is the first example of a community who, through education and proof of the terrible conditions that in which women submitted to these practices are left, um, that uh, the whole community basically embraced these efforts to condemn genital mutilations in women and girls. And this very same girl who was repaired, as we say, um, spoke publicly and uh, spoke in my organization and in the local community to say no because she wanted to protect her little sisters and prevent this from happening to them also. And so this is the first successful action that I was able to take. And then from then on, I started running to resolve new situations as much as I could, but it was extremely hard because I didn't have any money. I didn't have any help. And to perform such surgeries, um, you need to purchase a surgery kit that you bring to the hospital so that the surgery can take place. And for that, you need money to buy these kits. And it was while I was trying to figure out how to deal with all of these logistics as well as figure out how we can pay for transportation for these girls from my home city, which is in a rural area in Konguse, to take them to the capital city where the hospitals are, those at least who can perform these surgeries, that I met an Austrian couple that changed everything. And I would like to say hello to them because I remember, and they are called Petra and Gunther Lanier. And so I told them about my story. I told them about the situation. I told them about what I was trying to do. And they said, don't give up. They said, don't abandon any of these girls. We will help you. Just bring them to us, tell us, and we will figure it out. And so this couple from then on 
has been paying all of the costs of the girls that we help get the reparation surgeries. And the word reparation is important so that they can be taken care of from the beginning where they have to be transported to the capital city through the whole hospitalization phase, the surgery, the post-surgeries, and the rehabilitation. And so all of the work done through my association can happen thanks to this couple. I did uh, feel threatened, and I actually was threatened, but it is all in the past now. Um, things have evolved. But 10 or 15 years ago, things were different. And actually, one day, my father came to talk to me, and he said, I am sorry to tell you that, but you must stop. Many, many people came to see me, because of what you do, because they are angry because of what you do, because they disagree with what you do. And what you do is very dangerous for your life because you are upsetting traditional leaders who are powerful people. And yes, this was very hurtful for me because it was my dad who was saying this to me. And I said, but dad, I am not doing anything wrong. I just want to help people and I want to teach people and I want to make people understand that what I'm trying to do is to help people and stop this useless suffering. And so basically I targeted three villages that were of very difficult access because their leaders and their village chiefs were extremely opposed to anything related to putting an end to excision. So to try and get to them, uh, I chose to look and research the most difficult cases, the most tragic cases of excision in these villages, choosing the case of girls who had died in those villages because of excision of girls who have, had been severely impacted uh, by excision. And I found some, and I used them to show these village chiefs the dire consequences of excision uh, to make them understand why it had to stop. And they actually understood that the reason why I was doing what I was doing was because I wanted to do good and I wanted to help people. And so after that, I used those who were convinced to become a vehicle to convince others. As of today, the situation has become difficult and more complicated because of the security situation um, that exists currently in Burkina Faso, and particularly in the center-north region, uh, where actually our work has been somewhat halted, and we are actually somehow losing ground um, in villages and communities. 
because of the threat of terrorism. Uh, and so six months ago, actually, the local administration officials uh, in the region have actually made the decision to bad, ban sorry, the use of large motorcycles because of the terri ter terrorism threat. And so we were actually making headway before that because we were advancing in the process. And we were actually hoping to win this battle. But now with the new threat, things have become different. Mais vous n'allez pas vous arrêter de lutter. Absolument pas. <laughs> Absolutely not. Nous n'allons pas nous arrêter. We will not stop. C'est une question de survie. It's a question of life and death. I think, first of all, I feel pride. I feel that somewhat I have accomplished, in part at least, my mission. Uh, but I have a, a great sense of, of responsibility. And I believe it is my duty to actually give back to my community because I was able to go to school when I was a child. And I feel that it is my responsibility to give back to my community. And this is the feeling that gives me the energy and the will and, and the strength to continue this fight. Twenty-two thirty-three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Worst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. Twenty-two thirty-three is named for Title Twenty-two, Chapter Thirty-three of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Claire Wadrago shared her emotional story fighting the scourge of female genital mutilation in Burkina Faso. Prior to our interview, Claire received a prestigious International Women of Courage Award presented by the First Lady and Secretary of State. Before embarking on a special International Visitor Leadership Program, or IVLP, in Detroit. For more about IVLP and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233 and hey, leave us a nice review while you're at it. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ECA Collaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. And now you can follow us on Instagram at 22.33 underscore stories. Special thanks to Claire for her stories and inspirational work in Burkina Faso. Special thanks, too, to Isabel Parfait, who provided the translation and whose voice you hear on this episode. I did the interview and edited this episode. 
Featured music was Gathering Stasis, A Calendar Spread, Olivia Wraith and An Bile, all by Blue Dot Sessions, and Little Shadows by Lobo Loco. Music at the top of this episode was Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagirlius. Until next time. I thank you for all of the joy that I've been feeling and all of the grace I've been surrounded with. And I thank you for the courage you give me to be more courageous.